This is episode 323 with ultra endurance athlete, infinity loop mastermind, and former world record holder for the most number of FKTs held at one time, Jason Hardrath. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner and a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine. And I have a very special announcement. I have partnered with an artificial intelligence company to train an AI on this podcast. So if you go to dexa.ai slash strengthrunning, you'll find an intelligent search engine that you can ask any running question. It provides answers based on this podcast and our guests pulling from over 320 episodes. Go to dexa.ai slash strengthrunning to check it out. Now, I want to thank our partners who support the show. They're offering you some great discounts that I hope you'll take advantage of. First, we're supported by Impossible Sleep, a performance sleep drink to help high performers get the most out of their nightly rest. Impossible Sleep is melatonin-free, and it provides deep recovery while gently lulling you to sleep. And a big reason why I like it so much is because it's melatonin-free. Melatonin can often make you groggy, so I prefer to skip it whenever possible. There are only two ingredients in Impossible Sleep, making it simple but effective for anybody who struggles to optimize their best recovery tool, sleep. Learn more about it at impossible.co slash Jason, and be sure to use code Jason20. You'll save 20% on your first subscription order, plus you'll get a free sleep kit as a welcome gift. That's impossible.co slash Jason with code Jason20. Finally, get yourself primed for your run with an all-natural pre-workout called Two Before, made from New Zealand blackcurrant berries. Blackcurrant berries have been scientifically proven to increase cardiovascular endurance, speed up muscle recovery, reduce inflammation, and support immunity. They actually offer a lot more benefits than beetroot, which has been used for some time now to improve performance. But blackcurrant berries are actually more effective, and they also help with improved blood flow and inflammation management. They're also full of immune-boosting antioxidants. Go to 2, the number, before.com, and use code JASON at checkout to save 30% and get free shipping. That's the numeral 2, before.com, with code JASON at checkout. All right, my guest today was named one of the 20 most inspirational ultra runners of 2021. He was a 2021 FKT, or fastest known time of the year, top 10 finalist and creator of the Journey to 100 film where he bagged 100 peaks in only 50 days. Jason Hardrath is an adventurer, an ultra runner, and now the star of a new movie that's available on YouTube, Journey to Infinity. Jason did something that's never been done before. He did an infinity loop of North America's tallest volcano, Mexico's Pico de Orizaba. It entailed about 43 miles of high alpine adventure, peaking at the summit of over 18,400 feet twice while making a complete circumnavigation of the base of the volcano. 
The short film Journey to Infinity is a documentary about this accomplishment, and I hope all of you take the 55 minutes or so to watch it. With his partner, Nathan Longhurst, they established the first infinity loop of this peak, and they hope to do it again on the tallest volcano on each continent. Just go to YouTube and search for Journey to Infinity. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Hardrath. All right, Jason, welcome to the show. I am super excited to be here, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, from jocks shoveling rocks to jocks having talks, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> we should probably explain that weird inside joke there. So we met, what, a couple months ago. We were helping out a friend, John Levitt, who's been on the show a couple times in the past. And he needed help hauling some rocks around. And I don't know, I love some manual labor. So, of course, I volunteered. And uh, I, I clearly stole the tagline from, uh, what is it, college hunks hauling junk. <laughs> repurposed it for our <laughs> our purposes uh, we, we had a fun time uh basically just filling up a complete uh back of a pickup truck with a lot of little rocks and uh unloading it i got out a little early because i had to pick up my kids but i mean don't forget the key detail uh, uh i feel like jonathan picked like the hottest day in that whole week and it was like the heat of the day when he's like all right guys let's go let's go road, load a truck with rocks yeah it was but like yeah, 94 no, was degrees <laughs> yeah <laughs> we were a hot mess <laughs> yeah but uh anyway you've probably you were you were training for that day hauling rocks your entire life uh so you were ready for that feat of endurance that's what it all that's everything was in my life was pointing toward that moment so Well, so the interesting thing, Jason, is like, I had no idea really who you were when we first met. You know, John said something about you finishing up a series of summits, but I just had no idea you were such an accomplished adventurer. Um, You know, I think we could probably spend all of our time today talking about you summiting 100 peaks in 50 days uh, or or any of your other journeys and expeditions and adventures that you've had. Uh, I kind of want to hear about all of them, but (laughs) your most recent journey to infinity project, uh, I would love to talk about today. Uh, w- quick question before we dive into that. I read that you have the most FKTs than anybody ever. Is that true? So that is not true anymore. It was once um, true. It was once true. At one time, I was the first person to break through the the hundred mark of a hundred different FKTs. Wow! Um, and since then, others have. Uh, there's a guy in Germany that he just focused on like trail running FKTs uh, across Germany and just racked him up for the last few years. And he's surpassed me. Um, you know, and I, I, I now have shifted to focusing on these bigger 50 day, 40 day projects and these international projects. And it's just like, uh, it's not worth it to go chase a bunch of little ones again. Well, I kind of, when I did mine, I chased a lot of mountain records. Um, so a lot of them did have a little more um, like focus and planning, a little more weight that went into them because of the terrain I was moving on. Um, So I just can't, I can't compete with, you know, Oh, all I need to do is lace up my running shoes and go as, and as long as I'm fast enough, I get the FKT. Um, I can't compete with someone that's able to rack them up that way. So yeah, I guess he gets that title now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can imagine it being a really hard thing to do because FKTs are constantly, being broken, you know, like everyone is out there looking at these fastest known times and trying to break them. So it's almost like 
it, it's not like a personal best or a singular accomplishment because someone's coming up behind you and trying to take that FKT from you. So to have over a hundred of them does seem like a pretty cool accomplishment. It was, it was a beautiful, and I mean, re- the real reason behind it is I wanted to like the, literally the way, when I made the decision, I'm, it's like, I'm going to do a hundred of these. And I didn't really talk to anybody about it at that time. Cause what a ridiculous goal. Um, you know, I think at that time, the person that had the most had like 43. And so to be like, I'm going to do a hundred was just what a ridiculous outlandish idea. But it was like, I knew that means I'm going to create a hundred memories doing exactly what I love. Um, and I was still recovering from that car accident I had in 2015, um, at the time and not just recovering physically, but like recovering financially. And so the idea of like, oh, I get to go create these rad memories and have a reason to push myself hard. And it doesn't cost me an expensive entry fee every single time. I just drive there and do the thing with myself and nature. Uh, so it like had a lot of appeal for a lot of different complex reasons for me. Um, and I just, yeah, found my, found my niche, found my jam. And I, I did, I, I remember saying multiple times over the course of it, it's like, man, this is a game that just gets harder as you play it. Cause I started off with this notebook with like 150 different, you know, FKTs that I thought I could beat the record on, or I thought I could like establish a new route because this is a classic line and I couldn't find anybody that had a fast time on it. And so I was like doing all this research, but then I, periodically throughout the the time as I'm ticking up, you know, 40 or 50 of them, 60 of them, it's like, I'm crossing these other ones out. You know, someone goes and rips a time and it's like, oh, maybe I could still beat that, but I'd have to like stop everything and train and rehearse just that route. And I have all these other things I want to go do. So, ah, shucks, I guess that one gets crossed off. Um, so yeah, the game got harder as I played it. <laughs> yeah, very much similar to anybody's progression with, say, a race finish time. The faster you get, the harder it is to keep chopping time off that that PR of yours. I, I do think all of your FKTs and summits and adventures, and we're going to talk at length about the Infinity Loop, I think they're all the more impressive given your background and, and the car accident that you mentioned in 2015. Um, now, I don't know too much about that. Can you maybe go into a little bit of detail on kind of what happened and 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 how you recovered? Uh, well, I mean, uh, word to the wise, you know, I say this to my students and then I went and lived it. Um, oftentimes when things go wrong, it's not just one big catastrophic thing and oops, it gets you. It's, it's oftentimes a series of little things. And so it was a day where I had a stressful day with the students, just everybody was kind of ramped up. So it's like a whole day of de-escalating situations. The other track coach didn't show up and I was coaching track at the time. And so I had to solo coach the whole team, just running all over the place, making sure everybody's doing their workouts. Um, and then I had volunteered to be a part of, a, a group of teachers that met with the superintendent to discuss kind of district wide issues or, or anything specific to the school they represented. And, you know, I'm a pretty young teacher at this time, you know, being 25 years old at the time. Um, and so I, I realized I'm going to be late to this meeting with the superintendent. And this is like a big deal in my head at the time. Like, oh man, I'm going to be in so much trouble and this is going to look really bad for my career. And, um, so I'm like driving too fast. I forget to put my seatbelt on. I realize I'm mentally frazzled and go to plug my music. And, you know, the good old days of the aux cable when you still plugged stuff in and caught the shoulder, rolled the car and went out my side window, um, lost consciousness as I exited the vehicle. Not sure if it's because I hit my head or if that the moment that my LCL and ACL got shredded apart was 
between the center console and the steering wheel. So either I hit my head on the way out or the knee got shredded and caused me to pass out on the way out the window. So, cause I don't remember exiting the vehicle or landing and hitting the ground. Um, and yeah, push come to shove, broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, broke my shoulder in two places, put contusions and scar tissue through my internal organs and yeah, shredded that ACL and LCL really got like super lucky, right? Cause mathematically, statistically, most people just die on impact in, in vehicle ejection accidents. Um, and one doctor said, yeah, you know, with the collapsed lung, like you probably, if you were in typical shape, uh, would have suffocated on the side of the road. Um, so, you know, took the, all the Ironman fitness and running fitness and, um, marathons and ultra marathons and traded it for a, well, I guess I didn't suffocate on the side of the road. Um, a lease on a new lease on life. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. Cause literally the Sunday before the car accident, I think happened on a Tuesday and the Sunday before I went on a 140 mile bike ride, got off the bike, went for like a 10 mile run. And then my friends called me up to go play Frisbee. And I'm like, I feel great. Like I'll go play Frisbee. Like I'm on a whole nother level this year. Like this is the year I'm going to qualify for Kona. Like this is it. Like I'm just, I'm there. I'd put in like a hundred training hours in February earlier the year, that year, just like feeling like this is, this is it. This is the big year. And then on Wednesday, couldn't get my own drink of water. Wow. And so just that stark extreme shift for the first time ever, because I'd never had my body be broken on me before at that point. I'm like, sure, minor injuries here and there where it's like, oh, I've got to sit out for two weeks and then I can resume training, but never like, oh, I I literally can't stand on one of my legs. Um, Yeah, it was a bizarre thing to go from that feeling of invulnerability, like just be having unlimited energy and unlimited capacity to... I'm thirsty and I can't do anything about it. That must be hard as, as an athlete and a a pretty young person at only 25 years old, because, you know, not only are you just feeling probably the most invincible ever at that age, but you're used to, like you said, just living this extraordinarily active life. And then all of a sudden you can't even get your own glass of water. My God, like the, the emotional and, and psychological uh, recovery that must have had to happen after something like that probably equals the the physical recuperation that you probably had to go through. I mean, what a what an ordeal! Absolutely. I mean, I guess if I was trying to, if I was to boil down the whole complex things into just a couple quick points that might help someone else who's like, you know, maybe they turned this on and they just had a major injury and they're facing that and it's like, whoa, the mental the mental fuckery of it, if I'm allowed to use that word on here, um, is just ripping at their seams, like trying to pull them apart inside. I think two of the things that were very important to me is that the agreement I made with myself when the a different doctor said, yeah, you're probably just going to let that part of your life go. And I was like, I'm 25 I've only ever known a version of myself that expresses himself through physical challenges and pursuits. And it's like, I don't think I'm ready to not know an active version of myself. And so at first, like there was the spirit sinking 
And then a little bit, a little bit of that spirit of defiance built on the confidence of how much I'd suffered to earn the goals I'd earned before with all the races I'd done and making it on a college team back in my college days, biking across the United States, like all these things in the cookie jar. It's like, no, 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 you don't know what I'm willing to do to get a better outcome than you expect. Um, but the agreement I made was I'm not going to relent until I get back to some version of what I love. And right. So there's an understanding within that where it's like, I might not ever run a Boston qualifying time again. I might not ever produce a, uh, world championship qualifying time in triathlon again. Like those days may be done, but I'm still not going to stop until I'm back to some version of what I love. I will not stop short of the mark of being absolutely in love with the life I'm living. And so that was the first framework. Like I'm going to continue. There's an agreement with myself. And then beyond that, I, I had to, I still to this day, I refer to my best marathon marks that happened before the car accident, all of the PRs I set before the car accident as my former life. That guy, that guy was a badass, like good for him. He, he accomplished some sick goals, um, but he passed away in that accident. And now I have to build this guy and what he's going to do. And so it sort of unmarried, like living in my own shadow, so to speak. And I think that's a way we can undercut our motivation as we're trying to rebuild ourselves from a major injury or setback is we're always going, well, but I'm not here. Well, but I used to be able to do this. Well, I used to be able to go for 18 miles on my long run at this pace. Well, I used, and so every time we have that thought, it's just cut, it's sweeping the leg, sweeping the leg, sweeping the leg on our motivation. And instead I was able to celebrate stuff like this is the furthest I've bent my knee by five degrees, right? Something we would just take for granted, like not even pay attention to, let alone celebrate. And so releasing that allowed me to go through the journey of celebrating all the small wins again, to keep that motivation going as I rebuilt myself over the course of two years. Um, I think that was really important. And then the other key point, I think for navigating a huge setback that I found really important is remembering we are not runners. We are not triathletes. It's what we do. It's like an artist choosing a medium to express themselves through. We choose running. We choose multiple sports. We choose mountain adventures, right? It's, it's what we're painting with. Who we are is the thing deeper. I'm a driven, passionate, creative individual someone that seeks conquest and self-testing. And the medium I've chosen to express that through is my running and my movement in the mountains and my, my accomplishments in triathlon. And by making that subtle flip in our thinking away from like, I'm a runner to running is how I express myself means that when that big setback happens, like if heaven forbid, I got in another car accident and my legs were absolutely destroyed. I already know what I would do. I would buy a racing wheelchair right? It's like, I would just find that next expression to move forward. And I think when we, when we square that away in our mind, it prepares us for worst case scenarios. And it's like in the mountains with what I do, it's like, you have to be ready for worst case scenarios all the time. You can't just go out there and magic, magic land your way through a, a dangerous endeavor, because if something does go wrong, well, you just made it way, way worse. And life is kind of the same. It's like, if we don't square away how we're mentally approaching what we do passionately, especially if it's something we do passionately, then the, the amount of catastrophe that results when those setbacks come is much worse than it would have been had we been more prepared. 
So yeah, anyways, off my soapbox there. That's, those are my two big from the car accident, my two big, like how to instill the mindset that moves you forward. Well, that was beautiful, Jason. Um, and, and I think it's definitely going to be helpful for anybody who's gone through a major setback. Uh, a lot of that resonated with me thinking back to, you know, a time where I had to take about six months off from running because I had a, a pretty serious injury injury. Um, I didn't lose consciousness or get ejected from a vehicle. It was more just a, an overuse injury, but, uh, nevertheless, I think whenever we're, we're sort of like, um, you know, the thing that we love to do is taken away from us. It, it forces this reckoning inside of ourselves that, um, c- can lead to a lot of growth ultimately. Uh, and it certainly did for me. And, uh, I'm glad you were able to walk, aw- not exactly walk away from that car accident, but you're here now and you've been doing some amazing things. You have been, uh, expressing yourself, like you mentioned in, in some really amazing ways. And I wanted to focus on the infinity loop that, uh, you've done and you have a new film that's out on YouTube journey to infinity. Um, so you did an infinity loop of Mexico's Pico de Orizaba volcano. Forgive my pronunciation if that's a little off. Can you first maybe just give us like, what, what is an infinity loop? Cause this is a, a new concept for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, so I guess let's get into a little bit of the origins cause that'll make it make more sense. So, uh, ultra running has not always had the same amount of content knowledge and been as broadly applied as it is now. It used to be, you know, many of us can remember the times where it was much more niche and fringe and it was like this magical, like, whoa, someone can cover a hundred miles. Um, and now we have a lot more science and a lot more data, how to train, how to prepare, how to do nutrition, you know, all these things. And going back to that time where it was much less mainstream, how to do these things properly and do them well and train for them. Uh, a a beloved American climber named Chad Kellogg. He was known for doing some crazy speed ascents on different things. He held the record on Rainier and I think on Denali for a bit. Um, He dreamed up this idea for any freestanding mountain, but especially he, he, he loved the idea of applying it to Rainier in Washington. And he had talked about it, but then passed away in Patagonia before he ever actualized the dream. And some of his friends, some people who who knew him went and completed the first ever infinity loop on Rainier. And that one's like 140 miles, 47,000 feet of elevation gain. They took a little over four days to do it, um, you know, just because of the crazy experiment with mountaineering and with everything that went on as a, as a part of that with glacier travel and plus the massive distance. Well, anyways, fast forward in 2019, when I'm pursuing these like this series of, of FKTs for my journey to 100, the Rainier infinity loop is one that like caught my attention and it scared me. It was like this huge thing. And the record at the time had been sped up to be uh, two days, 11 hours at that point. So a much harder push for that kind of terrain, that much for that, that many mileage, that much mileage. Um, and I'm like, but maybe this is possible. I'd never done over a hundred miles. I'd, I'd raced a couple hundred milers. I'd never done over a hundred miles, never done that much vert, heaven forbid, never done that many miles of glaciated terrain. You know, this is crevassed glaciated terrain that you have to navigate going over the mountain each time. 
Um, and then also I'd never pushed into a second night of sleep deprivation at that point. Um, so it's like, there's these grand experiments, like, is this possible? What will it feel like? And I just had such a transformative experience. It was, I would, I would borderline call it a spiritual experience <laughs> during that push over the mountain twice and around each side. And yeah, what it is, is you climb up one side of the mountain and then down the other side of the mountain on an opposing route. You then come back around on the circumnavigation trail, climb up and over again, very often at a very different time of day. So even though it's the same routes up and over, they behave very differently since you're on like glacier and snow, there's different issues to deal with. You're able to move at different rates if it's frozen solid like ice versus uh, walking through mashed potatoes and you know risk of falling rock or falling ice dislodging from above so it's like two very different experiences and then you complete the other half circumnavigation so you basically draw a giant figure eight or infinity loop with the summit of the mountain at the center of this giant experience you get to climb over it twice you get to see the mountain from every angle it's like a pretty intimate experience and i knew right then it's like i want to go apply this because i'd done some climbing overseas already it's like i want to go apply this to bigger volcanoes um and then COVID happened so that all got pushed onto the back burner yeah and this is kind of incredible i mean so give us the numbers for uh the pico de orizaba volcano you know the the stats how long was the total infinity loop that you did what was the elevation gain too because i understand the altitude was a bit over 18,100 feet at the summit. Um, you know, this seems to me like, you know, very different than say some of the trail running I've been on here in Colorado where, yeah, you might get up to 12, 13, maybe 14,000 feet if you're, you're up near a 14er, but this is so much higher. You're getting up there twice and, and the distance of it all is, is, is like an ultra marathon. So paint us a picture of just like, what exactly are you getting yourself into here, Jason? So yeah, the, you know, like if I just rattle the stats off, it's uh, the Pico de Arizaba infinity loop was about 40 miles long. So about a 40 miler and it was about 20,000 feet of vertical gain. So it's like, okay, that's like a lot of gain in a 40 miler, but like sounds pretty manage manageable. But then when you realize the lowest point you reach during the circumnavigation is 11,180 feet. That's the low point. And you go twice over 18,491 feet. Suddenly it's like that 40 miles is a very different experience, especially with that much vert within 40 miles than it would be if you were to rip it in Colorado somewhere. Um, just a very, yeah, a very different battle to fight because now you're bringing in all these elements of high elevation mountaineering, like how do you properly acclimatize that you can trust yourself not to get sick uh, with hape or haste on the backside of the mountain where evacuation is difficult. Um, like you've got to like weigh all these different decisions leading up to the effort and then during the effort um, that are all a part of how to execute. Yeah. Uh, what would be for some of us a simple 40 mile run? Um, well, maybe not simple, but a 40 mile run. Uh, at a lower elevation. Yeah, the 40 miles just does not capture the difficulty of, of what this <laughs> adventure really entails. Because, you know, I, I'm, I was sitting here watching the film a couple nights ago. And, 
you know, you're putting on these like spiky crampon things. I don't even know what they're called because I don't do high altitude alpine kind of things. But, you know, you are essentially slowly hiking up an ice cliff going one step at a time so slowly. So to, to imagine someone like, oh, just trail running, bopping around for 40 miles, this ain't that. This is so much <laughs> different and more difficult. Um, so you mentioned HAPE and, and HACE, which I'm actually not familiar with HACE. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was, you know, just let's pause and just acknowledge the real risk of these kinds of high altitude expeditions. You're up over 18,000 feet a couple times. That can be risky, uh, particularly for uh, high altitude pulmonary edema. And I understand that you actually experienced this about a year prior on the same mountain. Can you talk a little bit more about what happened, wh- what what that entails, and you know maybe about um, you know how brave you are to go back to the same mountain and try it again. <laughs> Because this is no oh, joke, right? Brave or foolish, it's a thin line, right? Um, no, it's no joke. I mean, they call they call hape the silent killer. Um, they used to misdiagnose it, thinking it was uh, pneumonia, and then the people wouldn't wake up the next day. Um, and yeah, it literally what it is high high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, there's also high altitude cerebral edema. That's the haste that I mentioned. That's the swelling of the brain. Um, intense headaches, can't think straight, nausea, you start vomiting. Um, it's also very serious, but usually it's like the signs are so blatantly obvious that it's like, get this person down. Cause they can't, they, they're like starting to slur their words and, uh, they can't like talk or think straight. Um, and usually they start complaining, right? Cause most people complain when they get a headache pretty early. Um, hape on the other hand, the pulmonary edema, it's like sneaky. Your heart rate goes up. You start noticing like, Hmm. Sitting here, I probably shouldn't have a heart rate of 100 beats per minute, even though I'm at elevation. Like that's a bit much. You start to notice some little things, like a little bit of pain with deep breathing in or out, a little bit of pressure in the chest. But all things that you're like, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's easy to like dismiss it because it's not that painful. It's not that disconcerting. It's just like stuff feels a little off, and I'm at elevation. I guess it's supposed to be a little off. And so you sit with it, and by about 48 hours into being at elevation, you're suddenly you've, you've progressed through points of like coughing every once in a while and being like, Oh, maybe I have a little cold or something. Like maybe I got sick. That's unfortunate to full on every like 15 to 30 seconds. You need to, you get the urge as if like water is in your lungs to cough this like clearish fluid that's starting to fill your lungs. Um, and the mechanism that happens is when your O2 levels drop in your blood, your SpO2 levels drop in your blood enough, it triggers vasoconstriction in the lungs. And that increases the arterial pressure through the lungs. And then this triggers your heart rate to go higher to like push more blood through to keep being oxygenated because it's also starting to go up in the natural way it would when uh, our body notices the oxygen dropping in our blood as well. So this all this system starts looping in on itself. It creates a feed forward loop where now you get more vasoconstriction, which causes the uh, SpO2 level to drop more and your heart rate goes higher and more vaso. And so the loop just feeds and feeds and feeds until the pressure inside your lungs, the blood pressure inside your lungs causes 
fluid to leak into the interstitial, the intercellular um, space. And then that pressure builds so much that finally it ruptures into your airways. And that's when it's like clinically significant. You, if you don't go down, you will die. Um, and I had, I had given it to myself. I've actually given it to myself three times. Uh, once when I climbed Chimborazo in Ecuador, and that was just me being like young and dumb. Um, you know, I'd recovered from my car accident enough that I could go like climb peaks. I couldn't really run yet, but I could climb peaks and I'm like, I'm going to go climb an international peak. And I like gave myself no acclimatization, just rushed to the summit. And then on the way down, started getting like really sick. Um, and then spent like a whole day coughing up fluid and with a headache afterwards. Um, so like that one, I was just like, oh, well, of course I gave myself altitude sickness. I was, I was just young and dumb. And so when I came in to Pico de Orizaba, the last time when I had to evacuate, I thought, oh, I've got this conservative acclimatization plan. Everything's going to be fine this time. Cause I'm not being an idiot. Um, <laughs> and still ended up having to uh, evacuate off of Pico de Arizaba in December, um, of last year, because I started coughing up fluid in the middle of the night and had to spend the whole night waiting for the first, the first Jeep ride down, had to spend the whole night just kind of like, well, guess I'm staying up all night and just like standing outside the hut and coughing up fluid. Um, and then, you know, it was like mild enough for the amount of time I was up there. I wasn't like super alarmed. Uh, but it was like, yeah, this trip is done. Like, there's no way I can go up the mountain more from here, uh, let alone trust myself in the, you know, a 40 mile push in the back country, uh, where I couldn't just have a Jeep pick me up. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a serious thing. It's a real, it's a real medically significant data set to introduce to the ultra running experience, which is already complex in and of itself. Um, and all of these projects with the Volcanic Seven Summits have elements of balancing that elevation, um, that approach to elevation um, in a very serious way. I'm actually just just now, uh, I have a call later today with the team I'm going to take down to Ojos del Salado to establish the infinity loop on South America's tallest volcano. And yeah, the lowest point on that one, 17,190 feet. So oh my goodness. it's like a whole nother level from what we just did. And yeah, it's like really just instilling in the team how serious they need to take every little thing they can do for their pre-acclimatization process before we even leave the country. And then exactly how we're going to handle ourselves and not overstress our bodies during the acclimatization process once we're in country. Um because yeah, somebody, somebody being like, oh, I'll just go cruise a casual six miler. I feel fine today on day one at elevation. Well, that sets into effect the dominoes where their body's too stressed at elevation and we're evacuating them instead of focusing on the effort. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, man. Well, I watching the, watching the journey to, uh, or I'm sorry, the, um, um, journey to infinity film, I, I was struck by the fact that this was almost like a a consistent background issue during your infinity loop because you know you had had this problem the year before and you actually did start to experience some of these symptoms you know roughly halfway through the expedition um wh what was your thought process like when 
you started experiencing the high heart rate, you know, a little bit of uh, the, the cough. Uh, my understanding is that the symptoms weren't as serious as, as the year before, but, you know, walk us through what happened and, and you're thinking on the fact that you actually continued on and, and didn't go back down the mountain. There's, um, I guess there's a two part, uh, there's one part thoughts and one part, the instinctual emotional experience. So yeah, I've, you know, when you get to have an experience with something and it's rattling and it's serious, um, your, your mind and body starts to pay more attention to the details. Um, and so suddenly I had a lot of clarity on like, oh yeah, this is what, when I stop walking and I sit down or lay down, this is what the heartbeat feels like when the arterial, uh, well, when the pulmonary, uh, part of the heart, I, I forget which side of the heart it is. Sorry for people who love anatomy. Uh, but normally the the part we stress when say we're going for a tempo run is the part that pumps out to the whole body, right? Because it's trying to get blood flow to the muscles. It feels a little different when it's the part of your heart that's pumping to the lungs pumping hard than when it's the part that's pumping to the body. It's just, I can't describe it. It just feels a little different. So it's like suddenly that had clarity to me. Like, ooh, I'm feeling that like different hard heartbeat. Um, I, I'm, I'm feeling like this elevated heart rate with this thumping. I'm feeling this little bit of pressure and tension in my lungs when I try to take a full breath. Like these are all things that I felt before when, when, you know, 16 hours later I was being driven down the mountain. Um, so yeah, there's this very rational, like, okay. This is the preclinical things like I'm fine as long as it stays here, like it's going to affect my performance. Like obviously if I'm, you know, suddenly at a pace that would give me a heart rate of 130 beats per minute, I'm at 170 beats per minute, like I'm not going to perform the same. Um, I'm going to have to slow it down and be more conservative and pay more attention. So it's like this very logical part of my brain that's like this and this and this. And if it gets to this point, like if I start gurgling fluid or it seems like I'm on my way, like I take a deep exhale and I can feel you. Get, I forget what the medical term is, but there's this like little bit of gurgling or crackling that happens at the bottom of your breath. And it's like, okay, if I get that, then I'll pull the plug. Um, and that wasn't quite there. There's just the high heart rate and the, the pressure and the slight pain. And so very rational part. And then the other part was wrestling with this powerful anxiety and almost these like PTSD flashbacks of just how serious it is and how painful it is and exhausting it is to like cough for your life unendingly, like until you're finally gotten down. And just like, I don't want to be in that, that experience. I don't want to be back inside that experience again. Um, and so wrestling with that, that emotional experience in my mind, that instinctual experience, self-preservation experience in my mind, as I'm trying to like, you know, stay focused on route finding and, you know, staying on the trail and covering ground efficiently. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot to weigh, but you know, there was this element of like, I, I care about this project and I have these firm boundaries for, you know, if I get down to the hut, 
where our support person Alden was, and I have this or this amount of the medically significant symptoms, I'm done. Like I pull the plug. But if it's short of that, then I continue on the next leg. And that basically, like you could think of it like broken into four legs. There's the trip over the mountain the first time and we reach support. There's the half circumnavigation back to the hut we started at where I could also bail at. So leg two over again, leg three, and then the final leg back. So it's like, it could kind of be broken in. Like, are my symptoms progressing slow enough uh, or are stable enough that I'll at least make it to the next checkpoint? And so I was working at checkpoint to checkpoint. Like, is it safe for me to continue? Will it be safe for me to continue when I get to that next point? Um, and yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was push and go. It was, it was like game time decision type stuff out there. Um, yeah, which created some, created some tension in the experience for sure. I can't imagine, man. I mean, I think, I think every runner is used to that feeling when they're in the middle of a race or even a long run or a workout where they just don't want to be uncomfortable anymore. And that little person on their shoulder is telling them to slow down or stop. But this is that experience taken to the nth degree. You are taking this to such a new level where you are actually in a, a potentially life or death scenario. And, you know, you're you're trying to make the best decision possible for, you know, the project that you care about, but also the thing you care most about, which is your life and, and you know, the ability to go do these adventures in the future. Um, but I, I think the film did a really wonderful job of capturing some of the, the struggle and, um, you know, the decision-making process that went into it. It was certainly, you know, I'm like on the edge of my seat, like, are they going to make it? You know, this, this is just so fun to watch. Um, tell me a little bit more about what it takes to train for something like this, because, you know, I, I've talked to so many ultra runners, um, you know, this is similar in, in effort to me, like a hundred miler in terms of like the total amount of time that it takes, but the altitude is so much more extreme. The elevation gain is fairly extreme compared to most ultra marathons. It just seems like something that you almost can't really train too specifically for, um, but maybe I I'm wrong. I mean, what, what is, what does your preparation look like? I guess to start at a, a baseline place, I would say like being, having followed a training plan that would put me in a space for being ready for say a 50 miler is kind of like the, the general starting space for people to conceptualize like where I'm coming from. Um, you know, having structured long runs, long efforts, um, having, uh, built weekly mileage, weekly volume to be in a place that it was like, Oh, from this point, I would jump into a standard 50 miler. Right. And that to me is like a confidence marker, a tick mark of, okay, the effort is 40 miles on foot. You know, that's the number of muscular repetitions that need to be completed without fatiguing. Um, and so, yeah, that framework of, okay, muscularly endurance wise, metabolically with my, you know, hydration and, and, uh, feeding. Well, the feeding and the hydration is more like a hundred miler, like you said, because of the time span stretched out. Um, cause you burn through resources pretty fast at elevation. Um, but as far as like the foot time preparation part of the equation, it's like the confidence came from sort of like, Oh, I'd be ready to do a 50 miler right now. 
Um, and then as far as how to prepare for the steeper terrain, right? Cause sometimes you're climbing angles that are just like maxing out the stretch in your calf and Achilles tendon. And that's just a different stress than, um, being on more flat type terrain. That's not, you know, 40 degrees. Um, and then, you know, more scrambling movements, French stepping, right? So more stabilizer, like there's on this particular peak, there was about 2000 vertical feet of snow and ice. So you're like French stepping, which is kind of this side stepping technique um, when you use the crampon. So you're like using very different musculature than when you just run. So like doing things that simulate, I call it simulation terrain. I'm going to go out, you know, on Pico de Orizaba, there are some miles that are 2000 feet in a mile. And it's like, okay, I need to find the closest thing near me to 2000 feet a mile. And I need to go rep it out for similar amounts of time that I'll be on that similar terrain in effort to make sure my body, like, what is my body? What is my body going to feel like after lap one over the steep terrain? What is my body going to feel like after lap two over the steep terrain? And so running like a simulation in that regard of vert sort of simulating the steepness of, of the terrain, uh, of the, of the objective. Um, so that's a, a way I add into my training. There's a local hill near me called Hogsback Hill that has this direct trail up the face. And it's like, that's about 1300 feet a mile. So not quite as steep, but uh, you know, there's no switchbacks on the trail. It just charges. And so it's like, all right, that's a pretty good, like I can do it after work. I can do it in the morning before work, like go get a lap or two or three or four um, and stress the body in that steeper, steeper terrain. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, so much of it is learning to pace your body, you know, as, as all of us, anybody that's in this domain, it's like staying in the right zone <laughs> is so important. But the, the problem is it's like when you're at 18,000 feet, you walk too fast for a minute and suddenly you're anaerobic. <laughs> and you can't get it to come back down. Not just, you know, it's not like you run a wind sprint at sea level and you stop and sit down and it's like, okay, cool. My heart rate's kind of back. And like, it might be a little harder after that wind sprint to keep your heart rate where it should be to keep your, your body doing what it should be to, you know, slide back out of that burning resources, burning sugar too fast. Um, and back to that fat burning, but it's like doable. If you slow it down enough, it's like you overdo it by walking too fast at 18,000 feet. And it's like, nope, not coming back down. Like you're just stuck. You're stuck up at that higher, higher heart rate. Jason, one of the inadvertently funny parts of the film that I found was when you guys first started the infinity loop and you, I think you had your hand on the edge of the hut and, you know, you and your partner had your fingers on the, you know, your watch button and you're like, all right, and go. And you press the button. And then instead of like any other race that runners are familiar with, it's like you then began this <laughs> like such a slow walk up the hill that it was like a little bit anticlimactic and I just burst out laughing that it was <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there are scenes where you are shuffling and it, you can hear your breathing and respiration rate. Um, and it just goes to show how difficult it is to do much of anything at those altitudes. It's, yeah, it's just a, it's just a different ballgame. And I mean, you know, someone who 
has a disposition for performing really well at elevation and a ton of acclimatization, like, yeah, they might be able to move pretty well at that 14,000 foot, maybe even all the way up to 18. I don't know. I get there's, there's probably going to be some slowdown, um, for anybody when you get up past like the 17,000 mark, but it's like, yeah, it's still so much more controlled and you have to be so much more careful not to burn matches. Cause what would be like burning one match in a, you know, race that's at 4,000 feet of elevation is like burning half of your matchbook. Um, if you pull the same move at 18,000. So yeah, no, the costs, the costs of the equations just don't pencil out the same way as they do when there's more of an abundance of oxygen. Surprise, surprise. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in about this kind of physical feat is the fact, you know, that you have to use very different muscles at very different times throughout the uh, infinity loop. And, and you were mentioning this earlier. Um, you know, I was very struck by the fact that, you know, sometimes you're doing this French stepping up a very steep uh, ice incline. Other times you're essentially hiking up stairs you know, kind of built into the side of the mountain. And other times when you're coming down the mountain, you're either bombing down these trails or you're just skating almost on this loose rock sort of thing. And I can't imagine how your legs feel after 20 plus hours of doing what is almost like three different sports, you know, the running, the hiking, the uh, the, the, the Alpine climbing, it all seems very different to me, which makes this seem much more difficult overall. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you think about like, okay, French step, you're turning sideways and doing this kind of crossover step, um, over your own foot in kind of a sideways fashion. You think about how much stress that puts on the, the lateral aspects of your muscles, the adductors and abductors compared to a normal stride forward, then yeah, you mentioned, you know, I almost take it for granted now with all the mountain stuff I do. Um, you're just basically doing like single leg lunges up the side of a mountain, you know, like you're stepping up to where your knees almost 90 degrees out in front of you at times and like standing up on that on one leg and then the other leg. And then maybe you get a few easy steps. And then again, on one leg and then the other leg. So you're doing like these box steps for just hours and hours at 16, 17,000 feet. Um, it's like, that's a different musculature. That's a, a different experience than just running. And then, yeah, descending, like the strain on your quads to descend 3000 feet in like two miles, um, where some of it is like loose. Some of it's like, uh, what Nathan calls in the film dust on crust. It's like marbles on hard pack, right? Where it's like really tough skating. Like you, your feet are going to want to fly out from under you. So there's a certain like feeling it out and placing and being a little more timid and controlled. And then you get into stuff where it's like, okay, it's a little deeper than that. And it's like, you can really settle into like this long, like kind of plunge stepping is what we call it in mountaineering in the snow where you're intentionally kind of landing on your heel and like skating on the rocks on this pile of rocks under your feet until you rock off your toe into the next step. But like the impact that puts to move like that and like land those steps on all those dorsiflexors of the ankle, on the quads. Yeah, it's like a very, if you're not trained for that kind of descending, like you can do it once and your quads are just like hammered. Um, your shins are just blown. And yeah, it's, it's, it is 
a very different thing to prepare for than just like, well, okay, like I, I ran up a kind of steep trail at the, on the local trails and then back down. Um, it's like, that's not going to be the same. And there's no hope for you if you, you were to fall doing something like that. I mean, if you were to fall, you would sort of just tumble your way down the mountain, it seems like, because you're, you're on like, you're on like thousands of feet of marbles on rock, right? Like you said. <laughs> I, you, it, it's my, someone else brought this up with me. It's my firm assertion that at some point you would stop. Um, it's just the amount of distance you would slide and tumble with sharp volcanic rock being what you're tumbling and is sort of being like the casters, the rollers underneath you. Yikes. Um, you're going to be very lacerated and have serious abrasions even through your layers and clothing with a tumble. Um, and it's going to last a lot longer than you care to have it last. So yeah, no, there's, there's a seriousness. There's definitely a seriousness to, to moving on, on loose and steep terrain, like, uh, what you find at the top of Pico de Orizaba. Well, I think there's a seriousness to this entire ordeal, this entire adventure that you voluntarily embarked upon. And, you know, with the the health concerns of going up to those altitude levels, um, and the fact that you did experience some of those symptoms of pulmonary edema, I, I think it's pretty amazing that you're back on the horse thinking about your next adventure. Um, what What is the next adventure? You, you mentioned um, looking at another peak in South America is the goal to do an infinity loop on the highest volcano on every single continent? Is that, is that the ultimate goal? Jason, you got me. Yeah. The, the big vision. So, you know, when I first dreamed this idea up of extending Chad Kellogg's idea to bigger volcanoes, like I didn't have a very fleshed out idea. It was just like big volcanoes, end of sentence. Um, and then as I started thinking about it more as like a concept, and more as like, well, what what would be like the most global expression of this legacy and concept left behind by Chad? It's like, well, the volcanic seven summits list, when I came across it, it's like tallest volcano on each continent. There's no way for this idea to be bigger and further than that. And yeah, so Pico de Arizaba, I'd climbed it previously. Um, and I was like, that's that's an obvious peak. Like, I love that. It's just a beautiful mountain. Just like, it looks like the kind of mountain a kid would draw in a picture. And it was like, okay, let's start there. And then Ojos del Salado is the next one. Um, over my Christmas break as a teacher, have a two week window um, between Christmas and uh, New Year's. So it's going to take a team down there and attempt again, going to bring another, another young athlete along um, working on getting his trip funded for him, just like I did for Nathan to just create this like world shattering experience for him. Um, going to bring a couple of females on the team this time to make it a mixed gender effort as far as the, the FKT being established on it. Um, and yeah, going to have a, a team of four, maybe a fifth will join us. We'll see. And going to try to go establish the infinity loop on the tallest volcano in the world, which is yeah. Ojos del Salado in South America. It's almost 23,000 feet tall at the top. It's the plateau that you circumnavigate at is 17,200 feet. So, you know, basically a hundred, uh, 1,200 feet lower than the summit of Pico de Orizaba is the lowest point we reach on Ojos. So it's like taking everything we just experienced and like turning it somehow volume to 11 again, 
Um, and Ohos also has a scrambling summit block. It's fourth class, so serious scrambling, where it's like, if you mess up, you're probably in the hospital. Um, like, it'll be a serious fall. It won't just be like, well, I tumbled and my skin got lacerated a bit. It's like, no, broken bones are worse. Um, and from what I'm told, the experience of attempting to scramble fourth class terrain at nearly 23,000 feet it makes it feel a lot more like full on fifth class rock climbing. Um, you know, for those who aren't very versed in the um, Yosemite decimal system, fourth class is kind of like, yeah, you have to use your hands to help you move up. Um, so you're not just putting your hands on the ground. You're actually using them to kind of help you move up. It, it's necessary for balance, necessary for movement. And fifth class is where you absolutely are pulling to get yourself up. It's not just stepping um, and using your hands to balance. And so, yeah, it's like a pretty serious little summit block scramble at 23,000 feet after having done another, you know, this one's going to be 40 miles and nearly the same vert, um, vertical gain and vertical loss. But with this like little technical element that you have to face twice and at much more elevation. So yeah, it's, it's another like grand experiment. Uh, it's, it's smashing together these worlds of high altitude mountaineering, um, and, ultra endurance and it's kind of this like it's i don't know it just feels like this bizarre grand experiment to get to go see like can this thing be actualized can it can it be turned into a reality um and that yeah i guess it's fair to say that it has me <laughs> <laughs> well i can tell and and i think that's one of the reasons why it's so exciting for me to learn about this to to watch the movie is just because like you're so into this like this is really <laughs> lighting you up and it's just amazing to be around someone who's so uh excited about an admittedly niche a little bit weird uh dangerous activity like establishing all these infinity loops but jason i have to ask you like why volcanoes why volcanoes it seems harder to get to the top of a volcano and then get down to the opposite side because a lot of volcanoes have this crater at the top. Are you going down into the crater and then up the very steep side on the other side? Like, how does that work? Um, so you don't, you don't go into the crater. You go to the high point um, following kind of the ridge of the crater. Um, and then, and some volcanoes, they have sort of protrusions or bumps that are away from the crater or don't have a crater at all, depending on what type of volcano. And we could go way off into the weeds on that as well. Um, Pico de Arizaba did have a beautiful crater. People can see the wonderful cinematic footage of just how beautiful the top of that peak is. Oh, it's stunning. Absolutely beautiful, stunning. I mean, whatever cinematography that you guys used in the movie, um, it was the, the some of the best nature porn I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great phrase. I'll let I'll let Kevin Issa, the filmmaker, I'll let him know that you you called it uh, called it. What, say it again. <laughs> nature porn. Get this band from nature from iTunes. Uh, there we nature go. Yeah. Porn. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> now we've said it eight times. Um, yeah, cool. I'll pass that on to him. He'll be really happy to hear. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's. I guess why volcanoes one it's partly Chad Kellogg's idea um and you know volcanoes are freestanding mountains so infinity loops are for volcanoes volcanoes are for infinity loops if you want to do this like smashing together of ultra and mountaineering um and then for me 
volcanoes are what I cut my teeth on here in the Pacific Northwest as I was recovering from my car accident and reclaiming my personal power from like, you know, going from that, I could bike 140 miles, I could run 10 miles after it while I was training for triathlon and having that car accident that put it down to just can't get a drink of water. A huge part of the start of that journey was me just proving to myself that I'm still capable of going and living these dreams and doing hard things and going where I care to go and that I have the competence and the power and the fitness to still do these things. And a lot of those formative memories, as I'm like battling my way back out of this, were climbing the volcanoes around the Pacific Northwest. And so, yeah, I have a, I have a huge soft spot in my heart for just the experience of being on a peak that stands all by itself. And you just look out into the empty horizon as if you're in a plane um, as you go do these things. And there's just something about that that speaks to me. Well, it's really beautiful, man. I, I really enjoyed uh, the movie. And uh, I'm not sure if you're going to create a second one for the second attempt. I, I sure hope so, because it was just such a a really fun, like 53 minutes of insight into an adventure, uh, a type of FKT that I wasn't aware of beforehand. Uh, and it was just so fun. I mean, I'm, I'm, I get a soft spot for endurance, obviously, and mountain adventures. And it seems like you're just living your dream out there. And it was so fun to uh, just have this conversation with you and learn more about it. I'm, I'm super happy that the experience I had there and the opportunity to tell the story created a chance for us to have this conversation and hopefully people listening will get a little bit inspired for their own adventures and to try new things. Always feel, you know, people can feel free to reach out to me. I, I respond on social media. You can also email me. Um, I'm excited about this stuff. I want to share this kind of stuff. And I mean, I think as athletes, you know, I guess it's fair to call myself an athlete of some kind, an adventure athlete. <laughs> I think so, Jason. Um, I think you're an athlete. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm also a teacher. You know, I'm sitting here at school on uh, parent teacher conference day as we're recording this. And it's like, the lesson that's taught me is like the stories we tell with what we do, whether it's running the local 5k or traveling to a foreign country to establish a possibly impossible new route. Um, it's like the stories we have to tell people and delivering those stories in a way that invite other people into their own adventures that invite them into sort of this shared, again, I'm going to get weird here, the shared like spiritual experience of aligning yourself with hard goals of, of competition, of adventure, of exploration, and invite them to believe that they can take their place in that experience as well and put themselves together to be increasingly stronger and better people by chasing these things. Like, that's to, that's what actually matters to me. It's like doing the thing is super cool. Going out there and and surviving a crazy adventure that was on the edge. Yeah, that's super cool on a personal level. But what makes it really matter to me is that we get to have conversations like this. We get to pass on that stoke and that excitement and that people get to carry the torch out into the future where we could never go. And so, yeah, no, I'm really happy that the story resonated with you and that it led to us getting to have this conversation because as, you know, I'm not that old yet. I'm 34, but I guess I've been around the block enough with these adventures that that's just starting to have more and more weight to why I'm doing what I'm doing is what are the stories we can tell that help people move forward? Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and telling this story. But 
to be honest, it does very little justice to the actual adventure. Folks have got to check out the movie. Uh, it's on YouTube. Is, is it anywhere else if, if folks want to check it out elsewhere? It is uh, about to release on Outside Watch and Outside TV as well. Um, managed to sign sign a, a, a deal with them for distribution, which was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, as far as Ojos del Salado, we're, we're in the works of getting the getting the film team together for that to to produce a a next chapter we're, we're kind of hoping that we get to record to some degree every single chapter of the the whole endeavor and then at the end it can all be put together into one big volcanic seven summits storytelling piece as well so crossing fingers hoping the magic keeps coming together piecing it together as i go because i mean I'm, I'm a school teacher by trade i i have really not a whole lot of clue of how to especially like Antarctica, $70,000 a person. I don't know how to fund a project like that. Like I'm, I'm putting things together, just reaching and creating and imagining and, and hoping that a wild idea just gets to come together over the course of it that, yeah, inspires some people. Yeah, well, I think one of the best ways that we all can help you out is just by showing some interest in the film and, and showing some of those other organizations that you're reaching out to that people have an appetite for this kind of content. So uh, if you're listening and you want to share this uh, film with your running club, your friends, your your mountain buddies, uh, definitely check it out on YouTube. I'm going to include not just a link to it. I think I'm just going to embed the the film on the blog post that goes along with this podcast episode so that even if you're you're just browsing strength running and you come across this podcast, it's going to be right there uh, in the article. So uh, Jason, thanks so much for coming on and just sharing not only this adventure, but your passion for the adventure and your excitement about it. Uh, I think we can all learn a lot from the example that you're setting. So thank you. Thank you, Jason. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. And that's our show. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to pay it forward, you can rate and review the show, share it with your running friends or club, or browse all of our training programs at strengthrunning.com. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. By using their links and discount codes that I'll mention in just a minute, you help the Strength Running Podcast sustain itself so I can keep publishing episodes. First, get yourself a whopping 30% discount and free shipping at twobefore.com on their all-natural, scientifically proven pre-workout with code JASON. Twobefore, which is the numeral two followed by the word before, is made from New Zealand blackcurrant berries which improves vasodilation or blood flow, just like beetroot. But they also improve recovery after exercise by managing oxidative stress through their unique ratio of antioxidants, which also have a nice side benefit of supporting your immune system. The main antioxidant is called anthocyanin, which I hadn't heard of, but is more present in New Zealand blackcurrant berries than tart cherries, raspberries, blackberries, or blueberries. Plus, two before tastes delicious, I love products that are both good for your performance and good for your overall health. Get yourself 30% off and free shipping with code JASON at twobefore.com. That's the numeral two, before.com with code JASON for 30% off your order and free shipping. We're also supported by Impossible Sleep, a performance sleep drink to help high performers get the most out of their nightly rest. Impossible Sleep is a melatonin-free sleep drink mix that provides deep recovery while gently lulling you to sleep. You can learn more about it at impossible.co slash Jason. 
and be sure to use code JASON20 to save 20% on your first subscription order. Plus, you'll also get a free sleep kit as a welcome gift. Now, I love this product because, number one, it just works, and it's super simple. It only has two ingredients with magnesium to promote muscle recovery and deep sleep, and L-theanine for a subtle calming effect that helps you wind down at the end of the day. Now, I'm someone who doesn't really have a problem pushing the limits with work, parenting, training. I'm a go, go, go kind of guy, but I also struggle with falling asleep at the end of the day. Sometimes I kind of just lay there and think about my to-do list, my training goals, or just stressing out about normal life anxieties like we all do. But High-achieving runners have to prioritize their sleep. Sleep is like a performance-enhancing drug. It allows us to absorb our training, improve, and ultimately race faster. Impossible Sleep helps you optimize your bedtime routine so you can get as much of that deep recovery as possible. And when you consider that studies have shown that sleep loss can lead to glucose imbalances, dramatic spikes in your injury risk, increased anxiety, and your risk of getting sick, it's a no-brainer to get as much high-quality sleep as you can. Now you can get 20% off your first subscription order and a free sleep kit at impossible.co slash Jason with code Jason20. That's 20% off your first subscription order at impossible.co slash Jason. And don't forget to use Jason20 at checkout for that free sleep kit. All right, that's our show today, my friends. If you're getting value from the podcast, the best way to support us is to take advantage of those partner discounts I just mentioned. You can rate and review the podcast or invest in a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. Thank you, and we'll be in touch.